You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Why did the U.S. intelligence community get starchy about Kaspersky last year? Their Israeli colleagues tipped them off that something was fishy in the software's use. UpGuard says Accenture left some AWS data buckets exposed. Accenture says they were associated with decommissioned systems, but exposed they seem to have been. Sources say Deloitte's breach is worse than hitherto disclosed, with more than 300 clients exposed. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, October 11, 2017. The New York Times and other outlets reported late yesterday that Israeli intelligence officers tipped off their U.S. National Security Agency counterparts that Kaspersky software had been used to gain access to devices holding highly classified American intelligence documents. Israeli intelligence services monitoring Russian activities saw them using Kaspersky software as what the New York Times calls an improvised search engine. They notified their American colleagues and, the Times reports, this is the background to the U.S. government's decision to ban Kaspersky products from its networks. Israeli intelligence services penetrated Kaspersky in 2014, sources say. Kaspersky discovered and disclosed without attribution Israeli presence on its networks in 2015. It connected the activity to the Duku family of cyber espionage tools. Antivirus software is an attractive target because of the system access it receives. Kaspersky's products have the reputation of being particularly aggressive in their scans of the devices they're installed to protect. Kaspersky has long represented that as a feature, not a flaw, saying that such scanning increases their ability to offer protection against little-known and unfamiliar threats. Of course, should such scanning be compromised, it can be exploited to look for sensitive material on the devices it's protecting. And that's what sources in the U.S. government say happened in this case. An NSA contractor's machine with Kaspersky security software installed was hacked by Russian intelligence services, probably the FSB by most accounts, who knew exactly what files they wanted. And those are the files they got. The U.S. government decided to ban Kaspersky security software from its networks on September 13, 2017, when the Department of Homeland Security issued binding Operational Directive 17-01. The directive came after months of quiet warnings by intelligence and federal law enforcement organizations of the risks Kaspersky software presented. Kaspersky Lab itself denied that its products were being used to collect intelligence on behalf of Russian or any other national intelligence services, and called for the U.S. government to, in effect, put up or shut up about the widely used security software. All questions about the undeniable tension between Russia and the U.S. aside, this would appear to be at least part of the evidence Kaspersky challenged the U.S. to present. 
Kaspersky's precise relationship to the alleged exploit remains unclear. If their software was indeed exploited, one can take one of the following positions on the incident. Either one of these possibilities, or even some mix of all of them, are likely to be true. Either Kaspersky cooperated with Russian intelligence services and delivered its products up for espionage purposes, or the Russian services hacked Kaspersky without its knowledge, or the Russian services succeeded in infiltrating agents into the company without the company's executives' knowledge. A number of observers think it unlikely that any Russian company would be able to refuse a request from their country's security services. Another major consultancy has suffered data exposure. UpGuard reports that on September 17th, their researchers found sensitive data belonging to Accenture exposed in four unsecured Amazon Web Services S3 buckets. It's unclear whether the data, now secured, were obtained by bad actors. Accenture says the only unauthorized scan they've detected came from UpGuard. Accenture also says the material exposed, including keys and credentials, was related to a decommissioned system. Deloitte's breach may have grown worse. The Guardian reports that 350 clients, including U.S. government agencies and multinational corporations, suffered exposure. Deloitte, which had put the number of affected clients at six, disputes the report. The number of data exposures being reported in companies that are well-resourced and sophisticated with respect to security is striking. It seems failure to securely configure databases in the cloud is common. We can offer a couple of conjectures about why this is so. First, the cloud is so easy and seems to do so much that it can appear to users that their cloud service probably handles security implementation, encryption, and other basic elements of cyber hygiene. Unfortunately, that isn't so. These matters are generally the user's responsibility, although some cloud vendors, notably Amazon, are working to give their users as much help attending to these matters as they reasonably can. And second, organizationally, it may be fatally easy to regard configuring your AWS S3 buckets as a routine IT task. Well, if there's any big lesson from the past two quarters, it's this. Organizational leaders pay attention to cloud security. The security of IoT devices remains an ongoing challenge, and the folks at Arctic Wolf Networks recently published the results from a survey titled Ransomware of Things When Ransomware and IoT Collide. Brian Nesmith is CEO at Arctic Wolf, and he shares insights from the report. A couple of good things stand out. Uh, the first is that, one, everybody wants their IoT devices to be connected. The idea of just getting a device that I'm not going to plug into a network, I want to be able to remotely control it. I want to be able to configure it and manage it. And at the same time, a bit of cognitive dissonance. I want to connect to the internet and whatever security exists on that device, that's, I'm not really going to build anything else. So a bit of inconsistent view, which is I need something, but I'm not necessarily going to worry about the security. I'm going to depend on the vendor to make sure they're doing the right thing to secure that device. And is that a realistic expectation? I think much like you see in other parts of your infrastructure, you have to build a layered defense and adding uh, monitoring and you know, detection of failures in your security is a critical part of making it. And that applies to IoT like it applies to laptops and servers and every other device that you have in your network. One of the interesting uh, statistics I saw that you sent over was um, it said that uh, nearly everyone expressed concern about ransomware, but almost half of them would rather pay off the cyber criminals with ransom than to adequately patch and protect their systems ahead of time. So this sort of um, reactive rather than proactive approach uh, was preferred. 
Yeah, you see, I, I guess what I would say is overall general view, which is I find it impossible to keep everything patched. So if I do get compromised, I'm going to bet on, you know, my ability to just to pay the ransom and that's the way I'll recover or I'm going to restore from backups. I think to some extent you can consider it uh, a form of just sticking your head in the sand and just hoping it doesn't happen to me. I suppose there's some good news uh, to be taken from this. The survey uh, pointed out that more than half of the organizations have a dedicated response plan. I would have said that, that in general, people have an idea, okay, what am I going to do if I get hit with ransomware, if I get my devices compromised? I, to some extent, I think, like you said, the incident response plan could be, I'm just going to pay the ransom and then restore it. Uh, in other cases, they've gotten a bit more sophisticated with backup. But there is definitely um, a growing threat in this area. We're seeing more and more small businesses getting attacked uh, using IoT. And it's the sort of thing that you can't ignore. It's, it's not like a PC that you have on somebody's desktop where you can deal with it later date. If they compromise your heating system and it's the middle of winter, you've got to deal with it. So it begins a, an immediacy and, a, and something that's very apparent to a lot of organizations. Looking at the results of the survey, what were the take-homes for you in, in terms of uh, advice you would give to uh, to organizations who are dealing with these uh, IoT issues? I, I would start with by recognizing that IoT devices are built on standard, much older operating systems. And the organization can't depend completely on the vendor that's supplying those devices that they're going to stay patched and up-to-date. Uh, they're oftentimes packaged as a black box, but inside them is Windows CE, you know, Windows 3.1, Windows 95, very old versions of Linux, and that organizations need to be more proactive and realize that this is a vector that if they get compromised, it can be used to attack other parts of their infrastructure. Hackers only have to find the weakest link, and the weakest link increasingly is going to be most likely an IoT device. That's Brian Nesmith from Arctic Wolf. At AUSA yesterday, there was much discussion among attendees of the growing convergence of cyber operations with traditional electronic warfare disciplines. Those whose memories extend to the Cold War endgame found the discussion of the electronic threat very familiar. Now, as then, Russian electronic attack capabilities were highly respected and much feared. This threat, with the rise of hybrid war, has now been transposed into the cyber domain. We'll have discussions of these and other matters later this week as the annual conference wraps up. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire.
Now I'd like to tell you about some research from our sponsor, Silence. Good policy is informed by sound technical understanding. The crypto wars aren't over. Silence would like to share some thoughts from ICIT on the surveillance state and censorship and about the conundrum of censorship legislation. They've concluded that recent efforts by governments to weaken encryption, introduce exploitable vulnerabilities into applications, and develop nation-state dragnet surveillance programs will do little to stymie the rise in terrorist attacks. These efforts will be a detriment to national security and only further exhaust law enforcement resources and obfuscate adversary communiques with a massive cloud of noise. Backdoors for the good guys means backdoors for the bad guys, and it's next to impossible to keep the lone wolves from hearing the howling of the pack. Go to Silance.com and take a look at their blog for reflections on surveillance, censorship, and security. And we thank Silance for sponsoring our show. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, welcome back. Um, you know, we got a, uh, we got some response from a listener about uh, one of our recent segments. We were talking about password managers yep. and password safety and so forth. And uh, one of the things that we talked about was the possibility that if you are using a password manager, perhaps you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Right. And how important it is to use multi-factor authentication. Yeah, this, I agree. Uh, this listener sent in a, a clever, uh, a clever bit of information. Um, what they said they did. I'm not going to say their name because they didn't tell us we could uh, use it on the air. But okay. um, they said that what they do. Is is they let the password manager automatically generate the, a random string. Let's just mm-hmm. say it's 20 characters long. But that, So they have the password manager automatically fill in that string, but then they append that string with a four-digit code that, that they know, you know, a, a number or a phrase, whatever, that, that's meaningful to them, that they can remember, that they add to every one of these randomly generated passwords. Okay. So the point is... They have this randomly generated password that the password manager remembers, but by appending it with this four-digit code, um, even the password manager doesn't know the whole password. Right. So it's this balance of them having something that's easy to remember. They only need to remember a short combination of characters, but it makes the password manager that much safer. Well, yeah, it does. I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying it doesn't make it less secure. A lot of times when I hear people say, I have this security idea, a lot of times what they're doing is they're actually uh, decreasing the level of security. Well, if you're using <laughs> random 20-character passwords or so, you know, some whatever, uh, around just completely garbage string of characters right. as your password, right. uh, that's already secure. And if your concern is that you're going to have a piece of malware uh, exfiltrate your password database and, th- and that falls into s- into someone else's hands, then this could be a hedge against that. Absolutely. I think it's a good idea. It, it, it doesn't hurt to do it. So is, do you think that's sufficient? Is, is it a, overall you're, you're on board with this one? Well, the, I am on board with this one. I would recommend, however, that you uh, are flexible with being able to change that pin over time. Uh, because if some site that you're if you're a specific target, and that's really what you're worrying about at this point in time, mm-hmm. somebody gets one of your passwords, they're going to see, let's say they get your password from a from a breached site that didn't encrypt your password at all. It just stored it in plain text. Well, they're going to see the four-digit code at the end of your password. Right. Uh, and if they also have your password library, your, pass, your password manager and access to that, then they're going to quickly be able to associate that. So be able to change that. That is a very far-fetched 
scenario, though. Somebody getting right, access to case, yeah. yeah, getting getting access to a database uh, and access to your password manager. Those two things are probably not very likely to happen. So I still think this is a good idea. All right, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.